Disaster recovery and business continuity planning has been put to the test in recent weeks as financial institutions along the East Coast continue to recover from the aftermath of Superstorm Sandy. For North Jersey Community Bank, based in Inglewood Cliffs, New Jersey, a well-laid-out business continuity plan paid off in the days and weeks following Sandy's October 29 strike. This $882 million community bank, which serves small businesses across New Jersey and New York, was able to reopen for business the day after the storm, ensuring it could continue business operations. Hi, I'm Tracy Kitten with Information Security Media Group, and I'm joined today by Frank Sorrentino, Chairman and CEO of North Jersey Community Bank. Now, Frank, Sandy took a toll on most of the communities North Jersey Community Bank serves. Can you tell us a bit about Sandy's impact in your area? Well, the storm was devastating here in our market area and all the markets that we serve. Uh, we are in the greater New York metropolitan area, so, you know, um, counties like Hudson County were uh, affected dramatically. That would be Jersey City, Hoboken, you know, those are the towns that you've seen on the news. Uh, there was a lot of tree damage in some of the older communities, uh, power lines down, interruption in telephone service, um, you know, just the, the garden variety issues that you saw with Sandy affected us uh, dramatically here. We did, we did not represent a lot of the shore communities where homes were actually completely destroyed, but just as devastating, we had a lot of flooding and, um, you know, other types of wind-related damage in our markets. Now, your bank primarily serves small businesses. Frank, how were some of those businesses that you serve impacted by Sandy, and what were some of their primary financial needs? There were two issues that occurred. So the first issue was the obvious one. The storm forced businesses to either remain closed or not conduct business. And, you know, whether it was a restaurant, whether it was a law firm, whether it was any of uh, – types of small businesses that you would look at, that was the direct impact of the storm. But then there was an indirect impact in that even the businesses that could get open couldn't access a lot of their financial institutions. They couldn't access their mail. Uh, they couldn't uh, get money in the door. They couldn't get wires out. They couldn't pay people. Uh, there was a whole other secondary or derivative type of uh, exposure that they faced and that's where, you know, a bank like ours really stood out in this storm in that we were able to um, service our clients' needs, you know, even in the height of the storm. Now, your bank has eight branches. And just going back to some of the things that you were talking about here, helping these businesses that you work with to maintain business, were disaster recovery efforts implemented at all of those branches? And how did those branches help to meet some of the needs of these customers? We have always been a big proponent of having a proactive and sophisticated disaster recovery policy in effect. And the planning for that goes back to our inception back in 2005. These were not things that we did just prior to the storm. These are things that the bank prepared for over its lifetime to prepare for any type of cataclysmic event or, you know, non-normal type of an event. Uh, and clearly Sandy was one of those uh, events. So things like, you know, having duplicate operation centers and having duplicate phone systems and having duplicate, triplicate, and even, you know, more ways of connecting to the internet and connecting to our data processors and having multiple types of phone systems 
to be able to communicate whether landlines are down, cell lines are down, multiple vendors. Uh, the list goes on and on and on. And so we were able to keep the bank open, be able to service our clients both physically and electronically, and we were able to communicate, which we were told was one of the best things that we were able to do, is we were able to actually communicate to our clients, whether it be through telephone, email, or even through the use of social media, uh, we were able to let our clients know what was happening, where it was happening. Uh, We did have certain branches lose power, and we had to get temporary generators or whatever for those locations. And so there may have been, you know, a few hours that we were out. uh, But being able to communicate to our client base which locations those were, what their operating hours were going to be, and what capabilities we had uh, was very, very helpful to our client base. Frank, what can you tell me about some of these duplicated phone systems and operating systems that you mentioned? I'm assuming that some of these operating systems may have been located off-site. We made a conscious decision a number of years ago to have two completely replicated operation centers. So one is here in our headquarters in Angle Cliffs, the other in one of our other locations where we have standby generators and we have completely mirrored systems, so everything that's in one is in the other. That by itself was a big leg up over a lot of our competing institutions and allowed us to remain open from an electronic standpoint to be able to access our systems. Having duplicate phone systems and triplicate phone systems allowed us to be able to also communicate with our clients. These were things that we put in place many years ago. They've been utilized in a number of these different storms that we've had, these freakish type storms. How far away is this backup site that you have? It's not really that far away, but it's on a different power grid. It's um, in a different phone network. It's within our market area, so the geography wasn't what helped us here. It was just being in a completely different power grid, a completely different phone grid, just being different. In Angle Eclipse, we had lots of issues with trees. In our other location, that wasn't an issue there. Clearly, the thought process of having duplicate systems in an event like this was a big plus. In some of these areas that were hit pretty hard by the storm, was ATM access and maybe getting cash to some of those locations an issue? Again, part of our electronic network would include the ATM networks, and so certainly they were impacted, but they were for the most part up and running all during the time of the storm and in the aftermath. When you talk about social media, that seems to be, you know, somewhat perhaps innovative and maybe a little bit different than what other institutions were doing. Do you think that was the primary way that you were communicating with a lot of your customers, given some of the outages that were being suffered in the area? I wouldn't say it was the primary way, but it was another avenue that we utilized that, you know, we found very successful. And, you know, the interesting thing about social media, you can't wake up tomorrow and say, okay, I'm going to start to communicate via whether it be Twitter or Facebook or any of the social media sites. You had to build the followers. You had to build the database of people that are utilizing social media. So that database that we created and communicate with on a regular basis, that became very important to us as we went through the storm. There were some people who could not get it. Their email and could not get their phones working, but they could check their Twitter account. And so they were able to then see what was happening. And more importantly, we were able to engage in a two-way conversation via social media, which is another important tool in which we used for certain clients. Some clients were very comfortable and it may have been the only way for them to communicate with us. 
So you've talked about having disaster recovery strategies that have been in place for some time, Frank, but could you walk us through the process of how you actually implemented some of these strategies or how did you put these strategies into action once the storm hit? Actually, that's the easier part, right? You know, once you have spent the time and the effort and the money to develop the systems that you're going to employ in the event of an emergency, and by the way, nobody wants to do those things because we just don't like to think about them. But when you spent the time, made the investment, created the systems, created the process and procedure, the actual implementation of it was actually pretty easy. People knew where they were supposed to go. You know, our team members knew when they were supposed to get together. They knew how to communicate. They were well-versed in if they can't get through on the phone, what to do next. Everyone had you know, our emergency response team cell phone numbers, email addresses, cloud-based email addresses, social media handles if necessary. And so at that point, it's just checking boxes off a checklist, and it makes it a lot easier and calmer and more successful when you're following something that you've practiced, you've thought about, and you've made the proper investments in. Can you tell us when the plan was last updated and how often do you test it? We updated, I don't want to say daily, but we talk about and think about disaster recovery all the time. So it's not like something we dust off once a year and say, okay, what do you think here? As every technology changes, as we encounter even the most minor issues, we constantly tweak and think about our disaster recovery and come up with ways in which to improve what we think is a pretty good plan on an ongoing and constant basis. And then so I'm assuming the testing probably just takes place along the way as well. We do regular testing of our systems. It could be, you know, overnight, over weekends, constantly testing our capability to respond. I also wanted to ask about third-party providers that you work with. How were they impacted by the storm and did that adversely affect you in any way? Well, sure. Uh, you know, that's part of our thought process as well. What happens to our third-party providers? So even the simple ones like the telephone companies or the mobile phone companies were adversely impacted by this storm. And that's why, you know, we don't just say, well, okay, at next time, everyone's going to join a conference call because what if the conference call service is down? We have to think about all those eventualities. And, you know, we have to think about who those vendors are we do inquire what their backup systems could be, what their disaster recovery model is. We try to understand best practices. Uh, there are actually vendors we won't use because we don't feel comfortable about their ability to react in a disaster. Do you rely on any cloud services? And if you do, what do you see as being the advantages or disadvantages there? I would say yes, there are cloud services that we employ. I think they're an important part of our systems, but they were negatively impacted here as well. So if all you did was depend upon the cloud and you thought that that was your disaster recovery solution, you were rudely awakened in this storm because you couldn't get at the cloud. I think it's a combination of cloud and non-cloud to be able to function. Even the ability to do things manually and write things down on a tabular spreadsheet were some of the things that we needed to do in order to be able to service our clients. So I don't think there's a simple answer here in just saying, well, go to the cloud because in this particular storm, the cloud was down. Post Superstorm Standy, what changes do you think need to be made to your disaster recovery planning? What lessons did you learn? You know, it's interesting. After every one of these types of events, and clearly Sandy was the worst, 
our team sits down and does a postmortem. We sit down and say, okay, what did we do well here? What worked? What didn't work? How would we react to this in the future? What are we happy with? What are we unhappy with? And clearly, post-Hurricane Sandy, there are things that we will change to be able to better accommodate our clients in even a disaster of this magnitude. What exactly those things are today, I'm not at liberty to talk about, but there will be additional infrastructure spending and investment to be able to weather pretty much any type of uh, event like Sandy in the future. And then, Frank, before we close, what advice could you offer to other institutions that are reviewing their disaster recovery and business continuity planning? You know, the advice I would have given them before Sandy would be don't wait for an event like Sandy. And, you know, I think right now many institutions are just concerned or worried about getting through this and putting everything back together and then moving forward. But I think being proactive is very important here. And, you know, we've learned a lot of lessons here. And I think most institutions can look back and learn lessons about what they did or didn't do in preparation of this. And I'm not, again, speaking about direct preparation for this particular storm. I'm just talking about preparation in general because it costs money. It costs a lot of money to maintain duplicate systems and whatnot. But when you need them, you got to have them and take this stuff very seriously. Your customers are depending upon you. That takes a lot of thought. It takes a lot of proactive thinking. So think proactively, think about what you can do, and put the customer first. Frank, I want to thank you again for your time today. You're very welcome. Again, we've just heard from Frank Sorrentino of North Jersey Community Bank. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tracy Kitten.